Welcome to A Writer in Italy, the podcast. I am your host, Michelle Johnston, and this is a little share in the world of travel, books, art, and lifestyle. I live in Australia, yet have long had an attraction to the Mediterranean countries for as long as I can remember. This inspiration has fueled my creative life and given me incredible joy over the years as an artist and a writer. And that is why I have created these shares on journeys that have been made, books that I have loved, and cooking adventures inspired by wonderful food writers. You can find all show notes at michellejohnston.life and follow me on Instagram at a writer in Italy where you can find all of the meanderings and indeed the lure of Italy as the ultimate muse. Thank you for joining me. I love having you here for the journey of Muse Italia. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I have a great conversation with Emiko Davies about slow food and slow travel and her recent Tuscan adventure, Enoteca Marilu. If you would like to know more, visit enotecamarilu.com and emikodavies.com. Enjoy this conversation and find all of the details mentioned in the show notes. Thank you, Emiko. Well, I'm really excited and looking forward to hearing all about your Tuscan life and your recent culinary adventure with Enoteca Marilu. Now, I don't know if I've pronounced it right, so if you could share the Italian pronunciation, I'd love that. But I'd love to hear about what you're up to in the world of food and wine at the moment. So it's pronounced Enoteca Marilu. Yeah, Marco, my husband, who is a sommelier, and I, we decided um, a couple of years ago that we wanted to open up our own space and and basically like combine forces so that um, he had a space uh, which is the Enoteca. And Enoteca in Italian um, basically means any sort of place that sells wine. It could be like a bottle shop, um, only, you know, only selling wine by the bottle, or it could be um, like a wine bar where you're selling wine by the glass and, you know, maybe also bottles to home. Or it could even be a restaurant that's, you know, serving wine. So it's kind of a, a really broad term, Enoteca. Um, but the idea was we just wanted to really create our own work hours and have a better work-life balance because Marco has been working like the last 15 plus years. He's been working in in fine dining, which means very late nights. Um, I don't know if anyone's thought about this before, but, you know, when you go to a restaurant and you've had a really beautiful, beautiful meal, maybe with paired wines and, you know, often the plates get taken away, but people sit there with the wine. So, the sommelier is like the last person to leave. Um, so he would be coming home, you know, like two or three in the morning from Florence uh, where he was he was working as a sommelier at the Four Seasons Hotel and then at, at Cibreo, a really iconic Florentine restaurant, he was head sommelier, basically barely seeing our kids, um, barely seeing me. He would sleep in late in the morning so he wouldn't, you know, really cross paths with them in the morning and then they'd be at school. So, yeah, we decided we need to get a job as a sommelier that gives, you know, better hours or different 
otherwise to that was near impossible, I think. So we just decided we needed to find something that we could do ourselves that could dictate those hours that we wanted him to work. And so Enoteca Marilu, the name Marilu is it's an Italian name, a girl's name. It's kind of like the Italian version of Mary Lou. But it's basically, it's a, it's a, it's a mix of our two daughter's names. <laughs> so we have Mariu, which is spelled M-A-R-I-U, and we have Luna. We were going to call it Mari Luna, and then I thought that was too obvious, so Mari Lou is sort of the, the mix of their names. It's really um, pretty. And he's got, yeah, <laughs> so he's got his side of the Anoteca, which is um, a wine shop, and then the other side is the kitchen, which is where I do cooking classes and in the middle of these two parts, it's like an L-shaped sort of building, is a big, big long table, a big old farmhouse table that we bought at a flea market. And that's where we sort of, where we come together at the end of a cooking class or during a workshop. And we have these long, long, long Italian lunches <laughs> um, with our guests. And it usually involves Marco pouring wine or pairing wines with whatever we're eating and we've, we've cooked the meal together. And this is basically the dream that we've been um, working towards for the past couple of years. Oh, it sounds so divine, like a match made in heaven. I was wondering, <laughs> was the base available? Did it just fall into place? Oh, we've been looking for a place like this for a long time. We, we actually, it's been much longer than two years, to be honest. The first time we wrote a business plan together for something similar, it was, it was going to be, we wanted to do wine lessons and wine tastings in this really beautiful tower in Florence, <laughs> the middle of um, Florence. And, um, and that was in 2007. So this is a, something that we thought about doing for a really long time. And then, um, maybe six years ago, five, six years ago, um, we started looking for a space like this also in Florence near where we lived in Settignano. But it was really hard just to find sort of the ideal space, um, you know, that could serve as a place where you cook, but also be large enough and, and big enough to have, you know, a big table. I was like, we have to have a big, big table, um, you know, for people to sit around after cooking, right after our first lockdown, so in 2020, we decided to move out of Florence and come to San Miniato, which is the town that Marco is from. So his family is nearby, his friends are nearby, and and it's just a really beautiful little town and it's only 35 minutes from Florence, 30 minutes to Pisa. So it's it's really actually really convenient but also just just a really normal place to live. It's not touristy at all. It's just charming and there are beautiful views everywhere you look and that was something I really, you know, after, after being locked, locked down for three months, I thought we need to be in a place that has a really beautiful view and that I can walk to to get all the essentials you know, from home. And, and San Miniato sort of ticked all those boxes. So, so we moved here late 2020 and for a, a place where we could do, you know, this thing that we had in mind. We looked at all kinds of places, somewhere like so tiny that the only thing you'd be able to fit in there were like the toilets, you know, and then, and then there wasn't enough space to do anything else. 
we looked at some places that were enormous that would have been too big, I think. Um, and then our friend who is the local butcher in town here mentioned that his his aunt was looking to, you know, do up and rent a space and he'd never seen it before. And he, But he said, I think... I think it would be kind of amazing because it's a little bit hidden away, but it's right in the center and it's, and it's like a really ancient kind of space. And so we went to have a look in it and he was right. It was just incredible. So it, it's, it's an old, it used to be probably like a stable at some point. There are like rings on the walls for holding, for tying up animals. It is very, very ancient. Like it has metal thick brick walls. And um, these beautiful arched, like vaulted ceilings. It's it's really really incredible, and it has a little courtyard, and then and a little space that's that's the kitchen. Yeah, as soon as we we saw it, we we fell in love. But it it literally was just sort of a pile of rubble. It had no floors. There was there was no water, no electricity. It needed a lot of work and a lot of um, restoration more than anything, especially like the the brickwork. We patiently waited <laughs> about a year and four months or so for it to be, um, you know, renovated and fixed up. And we finally got the keys um, in March this year. Oh, it's so exciting, isn't it? After all that time and the dreaming and the wondering and, yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> it's been a, it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And it's been beautiful to see too because I've noticed all those gorgeous images you've posted on Instagram and, they're just so transporting. The whole place just looks really picturesque and that Tuscan ideal, you could just tell like it's quiet. I could see that from the photos, like it's really out there in the countryside and looks stunning. So now you can walk to work as well. Oh, we live like a 30-second walk <laughs> from the Anateka. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's really, it's, it's not only kidding, but it literally turned up and it's right around the corner from home. And um, that's it made such a difference because Marco was commuting into Florence every day for the last, you know, couple of years. And that can just get tedious because it only takes 35 minutes to get to Florence and then it sort of takes 30 minutes sitting in traffic in Florence and then looking for a car park and getting, getting you know, parking fines inevitably and, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we put all that behind us and um, it, it's it's really quite uh, – I'm still just sort of pinching myself actually. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. I bet he's loving it. So what does slow travel and slow food mean to the both of you in Tuscany? Slow food and slow travel for me I think is the – is the way, the only way to visit Tuscany sustainably and not just Tuscany, a lot of, lot of other places. Venice is the other place that, that comes to mind, um, especially on this topic. But for me, it's, it's not only slowing down enough um, to sort of to see and experience the places. It's, it's stopping to sort of reflect on why um, why in, in Italy, for example, food is so regional, not even regional, but so connected to to each town and um, more than even just the whole region, but how each each town, each village, each area um, has its own real you know food identity. And I think in so many places like 
like Australia and the States, for example, we have not got that, that sort of regionality that Italy has. And so when you come to a place like Italy, being able to stop and slow down and see those things is a really enriching, really valuable experience. And it's also a, a really nice way to visit Tuscany um, and and not just get sucked into the really touristy parts of it. Been based in Florence since 2005 until you know 2020. So after living in Florence, we found ourselves having to move out of Florence um, and just keep moving further out and <laughs> further out of the center because it was becoming totally unsustainable to live there. It was too touristy. Um, the rent was going up exponentially because once Airbnb arrived, you know, landlords preferred selling their, their homes short term stays. They could make a lot more money than they could, you know, renting, um, to long term residents. All of that creates, you know, such a problem for a historical center, which then, you know, during the pandemic was, was really like loud and clear. I mean, the same thing happened in Venice once you took away all of the tourists, the millions of tourists, and you had, you know, the, the less than 50,000 residents in Venice or the, um, you know, the less than 400,000 residents in Florence. Um, the city centres were empty. They were ghost towns. It was, a, it was just a wake-up call for people who live in these places and who work in tourism, who depend on tourism. And that was something that we we really wanted to, to sort of, we wanted to go... <laughs> against all of like going the opposite direction of what all of the tourism had been had been doing in a, in a city like Florence so you know instead of taking you to see you know Florence or the Tower of Pisa or things like that we want to encourage people to come to San Miniato and like stay here for the week um, so you know we, we also organize these five-day workshops and this was the whole idea behind this stay in a small town you know that has no tourism for a whole week and and get to know that town, get to know the butcher. And, um, you know, somebody who came on our recent workshop just said to me, you know, by the third day that you've walked into the coffee shop, they realise that you're, oh, you're, you're staying here. And they start to say hello to you like you're a local. <laughs> and I thought that was really sweet because that is, sort of, well, that is what happens in a town like San Miniato, whereas in Florence they wouldn't, they wouldn't even notice. You know, they, honestly, they wouldn't even notice. And that's, I think, a really nice feeling for people coming to visit and experiencing a place like San Miniato, which is so charming and, and, and beautifully historic and has these incredible, you know, panoramic views of the Tuscan countryside. And yet it doesn't have that, um, you know, heavy sort of almost constructed um, sort of fake Tuscan tourism that you find in, in places like like Florence or more well-known places like like San Gimignano or um, a lot of other Tuscan towns that have hordes of people sort of flowing through them. I think of it like, you know, when you're in a car and you're you're driving from point A to point B and it's very quick and so you sort of don't notice all the little things that are along that, that way. Let's say you're driving like just to the shops as opposed to walking there. And when you're walking and you're moving slowly, you notice that the flowers that are growing in so-and-so's neighbour or you notice these little little things that you just possibly can't see when you're in the car because you're going too fast. That's what I think of like slow travel and 
stopping to stay in, in a place like San Miniato for a week as opposed to flying through, you know, Rome, Florence and Venice in a week, which I know is is um, one of the most popular routes and trips that people do, especially Americans. Um, they do Rome, Florence and Venice in, in one week and spend maybe two days in each place or maybe even less. Maybe they um, are, are adding in another city as well and they're just sort of flying through um, I think it's really hard when you do that kind of a trip to really grasp any of it at all, and and it's just a, I think it's a it's a real you know missed opportunity for those travellers. Yeah, definitely. I love the idea of the authentic experience and getting to know the barista and and really feeling the place, like getting to know the place, and that's what I don't know. I think you hold those moments a little closer, don't you? So, what are you doing at your cooking school? The main thing that's um, that I'm doing at the moment is a, a market day cooking class. The idea is to take people to the market. We have this weekly market on a Tuesday here in San Miniato. It's very small, but it's the thing. It's a, it's. I think the market in Italy is like a, it's a real cultural thing. It's like a social hub, and you'll notice that when you do go to these markets, it's largely like an older generation and. They're not, you know, rushed doing their shopping. In fact, that part of the market shopping takes ages because you have to usually wait. <laughs> and um, even a small market, there's not that many people. You know, everybody takes their time and they're chatting and they're catching up on the latest gossip and everything else. And I think that that's also part of the charm of it. You know, you can't go to a supermarket and really have those long chats like you do at the market. And I think that that's a really nice thing to see as well. And so we start off at the market. We buy pretty much all of our ingredients at the market, um, aside from like a few basics like flour and olive oil, which I have at the Enoteca. Everything else, the cheese, the bread, all of the produce, we'll, the eggs, we, we buy those things at, at the market so people get it, get to experience, you know, what, what that's like. And I personally love that part of it because whenever I'm traveling, I love to go to a market, even if I'm staying in a hotel and I don't have a kitchen. And then I instantly always regret not having a kitchen to be able to cook these things in. And so that the idea of the market class was, was, was that to let people, you know, come to the market. What looks good? Do you guys want to try that? You know, or this, these look really beautiful. Let's get some of these. And I, I do have an idea of the menu in my mind before I go there, but some of it is is really just based on what looks good and is an impulse buy or maybe what people really respond to and we decide to, you know, grab something at the last minute. And that I love as well because it gives people a chance to to do that, you know, when you when you want to go to a market but you don't have a kitchen to cook in and you're like, oh, I wish I had, you know, time or, or a place to be able to cook these things. And then after the market, we go back to the back to the kitchen at the Enoteca and we cook. And it's a very sort of slow day. It's not rushed. We don't have a schedule. You know, we don't have to be, you know, rushing from one thing to another. It's like friends have gathered around the kitchen and, and we're just talking and cooking together. So lunch is normally like a big long lunch that, that kind of finishes quite late. I say that we've sort of finished around three. Quite often it'll be more like four or sometimes five. It just sort of depends on the on the group and how long we're sort of sitting there having having lunch. And um, I like it because I think it gives people the opportunity to see what what like a long sort of, you know, maybe a Sunday lunch would be 
in Italy, if you had friends and family here, this this would be that lunch where, um, you know, you, you do sit around the table and you have a couple of courses after each other and then you drink wine and you have some dessert and you have some dessert wine and then maybe you have a coffee and you linger over the coffee. And and it, so it's, it's very natural with how it sort of plays out and depends on the group. But I think that when it comes to food and people who love this kind of thing, um, I think that everyone sort of already has something in common around the table. And so even though they would all be strangers, by the time we're having lunch together, after cooking together, we're not really strangers anymore. And um, and so it's a really nice, it's a really nice combination, I think. Oh, your long table. It just sounds so good. I'm totally smiling. You can't see me, but I am. I'm like, oh, I would love to participate in a day like that. I just, it sounds like heaven. I was wondering what's on, <laughs> what's in season at the market at the moment. So we've we've literally um, started summer yesterday, and um, it's been a really strange start to the summer. I've personally been thrilled about it, but it's it's been raining a lot, and it's been unseasonably cool. And I am like, please stay like this forever. <laughs> I could just do a really cool summer after. Um, especially after last year, which was just a giant heat wave for three months. Saying that, some of the vegetables that would normally be in season now are, are not quite there yet. Our last market class, for example, I managed to find some uh, fresh cannellini beans, which I love when they're in season because when you cook fresh cannellini beans, they they hold their shape so beautifully. So they're, they're really nice for making in salad. And because they're fresh, they don't need a lot of time to cook. You just, you just boil them. Um, and in about 30 minutes or so, they're ready. Uh, those are beautiful, but those have, those have been hard to find because of, um, all of the rain. Some good tomatoes are coming in now that those, that's very exciting, but I, I know I'll be eating tomatoes for the next three months on stop. <laughs> Yay cherries this area um around sort of between San Miniato and Pisa is really well known for for its cherries and so we get the you know the, the big the big dark black cherries here um those are all amazing at the moment the stone fruits like not quite there yet we had our first apricots last week and they were they were good but they were not quite as as good as they are like probably in July um, and zucchini, we're just going like zucchini crazy. So <laughs> zucchini everything, zucchini flowers, zucchini sauce for pasta, uh, zucchini and salad, <laughs> zucchini everything right now. I love those um, zucchini flowers. Yeah, and melon as well. Yeah, oh, zucchini flowers. They, I mean, I look forward to when they when you start to see those in the markets and then I any chance I get, I, I get them and use them. And here actually they sell the zucchini itself with the flower still attached so you've got you've got the flower and the zucchini um you know the fruit and that's great because then it's like you you put the one thing and then you can do two different dishes with it so i really appreciate that farmers do that in tuscany it's also like a it's a really nice way to see how fresh the produce is because you know when you've got a very nice flower on the end of the zucchini you know that it was picked that day um, so that's, yeah, I think that's a really special thing. Oh, it is. That's my favorite time of the year when the zucchinis are in flower and, you know, like they're just, you just have to pick them every day too, because otherwise they turn into these crazy things. They just look so beautiful, yeah. don't they? <laughs> they do. They're so picturesque. Oh, just magical. 
it's so strange to be contemplating that for me because I lit the fire before. <laughs> so it's sort of, so funny, isn't it, on the opposite end of the world? It is. I would rather be there right now. The Tuscan summers are really very, very hot. I mean, I think almost too hot for me. It's not my thing. It's it's just it's become so hot that you it's debilitating. So you kind of have to close close the house up, you know, at about 10 o'clock, all the shutters get closed again, 10.30, close the shutters, and then it stays dark until until the sun goes down and then you open the shutters again. Yeah, it becomes, you sort of become like a vampire <laughs> living in the dark and not going out except, you know, in the in the early morning or the or the evening. I mean, it's it's nice in a way. I love the long evenings in, in Italy um, and everyone's outside and all the kids are playing until midnight. Uh, but it's like a, it's a survival mechanism because you just simply can't really do anything during the day. And then and then you kind of understand why the long siesta in the middle of the day is is such a thing. Um, I mean, here in, in San Miniato, for example, between 1 and 4 p.m., everything's shut. It's not like Florence where now everything is open all the time because people are – tourists are walking around at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a 40-degree day in a, you know, in a stone town that's basically like a pizza oven – uh, but here in San Miniato, because, you know, because we don't have to stay open for tourists, um, everything, absolutely everything from the, the pastry shop to the bar, the, even the gelatinia, they'll close between 1 o'clock or 4 p.m. because no one in their right mind is going to be walking around those hours. It's just, it's hot and everyone wants to rest after their lunch. I think it's very civilized and it's a, it's a much nicer way to be able to survive the summer heat because then you you come out later you you come out when the sun has sort of it's not as fierce and yeah a survival mechanism that that's really that's really what it is yeah and there is nothing worse when you love to cook and everything and then you just can't because it's too hot and you can't be bothered standing there and your legs are getting achy and and, and you can't put the oven on <laughs> it's nothing worse is there yes that's, that's me every summer and that's one of the reasons I don't look forward to it because I love baking. <laughs> I love baking things and, and literally the oven has been off, off uh, limits for already a couple of weeks and it only really got very hot this week but, you know, it was just already too much to turn the oven on. Um, I find I'm always like looking for like the no cook meals, <laughs> anything that you can eat, like prosciutto and melone, and we like all summer long, and <laughs> buffalo mozzarella and, and tomatoes. That's just all summer long. Um, yeah, even even at a certain point, it gets too hot to even like boil water for for pasta. It's like no, that's too <laughs> too hot. Too hot. Turning that on, it's going to make house yeah yeah absolutely yeah. oh gosh I had to make pasta before but it was a privilege for me <laughs> um I can't <laughs> I, I can't help but resist asking you about your cookbooks so who at the moment kind of inspiring you in the land of food writing and cooking I, I have to admit I haven't had a huge amount of time to read a lot of cookbooks lately someone who I love following is Hetty McKinnon and Part of the reason is because she's now, she writes a lot about Asian food and her, her Chinese heritage. And she's also, um, vegetarian. So a lot of her, well, all of her recipes are vegetarian, but you know, also Asian. And those are, uh, Asian food is something that I miss a lot because, um, I don't get it here <laughs> unless I cook it myself. 
And, you know, people don't realise that Tuscany is actually like a very vegetable-forward regional cuisine. <laughs> like vegetables are the, the basis of Tuscan cuisine because when you come here and you eat out, all of the restaurants are very sort of very meat-heavy and I would go as far to say there's a couple of restaurants even in San Miniato, more than a couple, I would say it's, it would be really hard for a vegetarian to, to find like a full satisfying meal on their menu because everything, everything has, has meat in it. And um, not that we go out to eat very often, but I just, I really like eating at home also with a more sort of vegetable forward, a bit more vegetable forward sort of choices. And also all about cooking classes is something I don't, I don't advertise them as, as vegetarian, but they actually are. And <laughs> they're all, you know, we're going to the market and we're choosing things from the market. So it is really all about, you know, showcasing vegetables. And I think Hetty does that really, just really beautifully. And I, whenever I see whatever she's cooking, I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm going to do that. Um, so she's, she's someone, and I've just, I've just subscribed to her newsletter as well. And um, she's someone I, I love sort of any sort of food that she's, she's doing. She has a cookbook that just came out now called Tender Heart which I haven't gotten yet, but it looks beautiful because it is this sort of celebration of, of vegetables. But the one that she wrote before that, To Asia With Love, I I absolutely love that cookbook so much. And it was, um, I found it a real like inspiration for my, my latest cookbook, which is coming out in, well, in September in the States and in November in Australia. Yes. So let's talk about that. So you've got Japanese home cooking. So it's so exciting, Emiko, because I remember you talking about it oh, probably four years ago that that was your real thing that you wanted to try and do. So the cover looks beautiful. Did you illustrate your cover? No, I didn't do that illustration. Um, I've, ha- I've done some of the illustrations in other in other cookbooks, but uh, no, that one was done by Eddie O, who is a Sydney-based designer and self-taught artist and she's she's just amazing and um, I really really wanted her to design this cookbook and I, I really just really wanted an excuse to work with Emmy so I was so pleased when she said yes and um, the cover that's really that was a really long and drawn out process um, because the publishers originally wanted a photo on the cover and I really love an illustrated cover, personally. Um, I don't think we need photos of food on cookbooks to know that they're a cookbook. <laughs> and um, and Emmy had done some of these little drawings for inside the chapter openers. And I was like, these are adorable. Can we please just put these on the cover? But the publisher sort of insisted on, we want to do a photo after about, I don't know, I think I took like 200 different photos and we exchanged something like <laughs> hundreds of emails uh, back and forth for like a good maybe six weeks they finally said okay this isn't working let's go for an illustrated cover I was like yes that's exactly what I wanted so I love it because the drawings are sort of very sort of simple and childlike and I think that they they create like this sort of nostalgic feeling which is for me what this whole cookbook is it's just a a big um trip down memory lane for me (laughs) I know it may not be for other people but I wanted to sort of convey these 
that these recipes were, you know, very nostalgic, but um, but importantly that they were family, it's family food. Um, so the, this, you know, Japanese everyday cooking, um, home cooking is is food that you make just at home. And in Japan, when you go out to eat at a restaurant, um, you're not eating the same food that you just cook at home. You're you're out eating like very you know very specialized food. So you might be eating like yakitori, but you you're in a yakitori restaurant, or you're um, eating sushi, but you're in a sushi restaurant. And so you know internationally, I think re- Japanese restaurants represent those foods, but they don't really represent the food that you eat at home. And so I don't think people know what Japanese home cooking really is unless you've been in somebody's home. Or you have a you know a friend or or a Japanese mother like I do or a Japanese grandmother who who cooks for you. That home cooking is I think really different to what most people know of as as Japanese food. So I wanted to sort of convey that sort of that sort of childlike nostalgia and the you know the home the homely sort of feel behind the recipes. Mm, and what do your girls prefer in that case? Like in between the Tuscan vegetables and your heritage what do they love to have when they get home from school or you know for dinner what would they request luna my little one definitely definitely prefers japanese food (laughs) her like number one request is ramen that's her favorite (laughs) and ironically i don't have a ramen recipe in the cookbook and i explain why um because i don't think of ramen as actually home cooking uh, but I do have like a soup, a noodle soup recipe. And so I use, I use that as like the, the soup base. It's super simple. And so it's something that I can also, I'm actually relieved when she says, I really want ramen because it's something that you can just whip up really quickly um, with this like very basic sort of soup base. And then you put whatever vegetables you want or if you want a bit of chicken or sometimes she usually she just has it like really plain. Actually, I, put, I did put a, a recipe, similar recipe on my blog for it because I was making it so often. <laughs> and she loves dumplings like that. So Luna definitely has like a, an Asian preference. And um, rice we make, I make like steamed Japanese rice um, at least once a week. And, and, and we, we eat that. Uh, whereas Mariu, my older daughter, who's now... 10 and a half she prefers all of the 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 italian food so her her like her soul food would be tortellini in brodo that's like her ultimate um and if not that she likes pasta yeah she's a real pasta girl and she's and strangely enough i'm like well ramen is like pasta (laughs) like it's really the same thing and she's she'll be like no i don't feel i don't want right she doesn't never wants to have like ramen noodles she just always wants to have spaghetti (laughs) like it's the same thing Oh, that's funny. That's so sweet. Oh, so you're definitely making two different cuisines for dinner or sharing it, mixing it up. Yeah, we mix it up. I try and do something where, okay, sometimes, honestly, I do cook two separate things um, just to like keep the peace, especially if both of them are really quick. And um, other times I like to make a kind of meal where everyone can just like add their own their own touch to it. So, for example, like the, the noodle, when Muddy does agree to eating ramen, you know, I just do this this soup base, which is just with dashi and a bit of soy sauce. Um, sometimes maybe I'll do it with like chicken stock instead of dashi if I have it. And then a bit of soy sauce and like some spring onions, uh, 
Um, that's that's kind of all all you need. Maybe a bit of ginger, you know. The, but you, you can kind of jazz it up if you want to, or you can leave it like really, really plain. And my kids usually like it really, really plain. So for them, it's just the dashi and the soy sauce, and um, and then you just cook the noodles, and then you can have like whatever toppings you want on it. So I might do like um, you know like a soft boiled egg that I cut in half, and you know Mark and I like to have the egg in there, and the girls probably won't have it, but I might have like some carrots or. Um, even like some radishes or I don't know, some poached chicken that I had cooked, you know, the chicken broth with. And so that, you know, that gets like sort of torn up. So you can kind of, and then that'll just go on a platter and then you add what you want to your soup. And that way I can do like kind of one meal, but they, they can put the things that they want or don't want on it. You know, it makes like an easier sort of an easier meal when you're cooking for, for different people who have really different tastes. Oh, I know all about it. I really do. It's um, it's such a juggle, isn't it? But, you know, it's nice to make people happy around the table. Like you want to feed them and nourish them, so it's all good. You know, I was just looking at the list. I've got your your book titles here because just in case something came up and I was on, on point, you could say. But are you up to your sixth cookbook or seven? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sixth. So Gohan will be – um Gohan the, this Japanese cookbook will be the, the sixth book incredible yeah. well done so amazing and they're all beautiful Thank books you. I mean I do have this is going to be my last question and I you're not prepared so you take your time um <laughs> <laughs> which has been the book you've enjoyed writing or creating or cooking for the most if there is one Oh, that, that is a really hard question um, because I think that each book had uh, um, had really different circumstances around how around how they, it came up and around how I researched it and cooked for it. Um, so, for example, like Florentine, which was the first book. I mean, that one I was just so excited about writing a cookbook. You know, I, I was like testing some recipes like 10 times each before, you know, I wanted to nail each and every recipe. I wanted them to be so perfect. So I was really like, you know, doing doing everything. I was so, so enthusiastic about, I mean, I have always been, <laughs> but, but that one in particular. But I with Florentine, I also already knew exactly what I wanted to write about. I knew all the recipes. I had them. I mean, I had that whole book sort of mapped out in my head before anyone even asked me to if I wanted to write a cookbook. Um, so that one really came about quite, I would say, quite quickly and quite easily and naturally to me because I had just, I had already spent years sort of thinking about that book. And Aquacotta, on the other hand, which was the second book, that book came about on a whim almost because I was still working on Florentine. And Marco had just gotten a job as head sommelier at one of the most beautiful uh, places we've ever been to, which is the Il Pelicano. It's like a um, just a stunning resort, um, very sort of 60s feel in southern Tuscany on an almost island uh, called Monte Argentario. And we had moved there for that job and um, this place, which is, you know, so so we're we're very very far south Tuscany. You know, only half an hour drive to the border of Lazio, but you're you're on the sea, um, and it, you're in the, an area that's known as the Marema. It's a really like wild and beautiful, beautiful part of Tuscany. Very untouristy, even after all of these years. 
I was just describing this place to my publisher who I was in touch with because we were still working on, on Florentine. And I had sort of proposed a book around it or at least like I, my original idea was like a seafood book because we were living in a, in a fishing village called Porto Ercole. Um, and she just said, why don't you, yeah, why don't you just write a book, <laughs> write a book about that? That sounds really, and, um, and we were only there for six months because that was a seasonal job. And so she said, you know, just, just write it now while you're there because you, you don't like, it's, it'll be easier to write while, while, you know, write a book about a place while you're actually living it. And yeah, just do it. You know, so I was sort of still working on Florentine, started working on Aquacotta. And that came about just sort of really quickly and, and I only had a short time um, to write it. Uh, but that place for me, so the Maremma and especially the, the Tuscan coast, um, that, that is a place where I have left a piece of my heart. <laughs> we go back there every, every summer. Really, really love it. It's an area, I don't know, I think partly because maybe it reminds me a little bit of Australia um, especially the countryside around there and, and the coastline and sort of growing up in, in, well, I grew up in Canberra and our holidays would all be on the south coast. And, um, I don't know, there's something about that that reminds me a little bit of Australia, but it's so, also so distinctly Italian. I don't know. So personally, I think for me that writing and, and, and researching that book and then visiting all these beautiful places, we visited a lot of the islands. I wrote about the islands in that book. Um, so like Juvio Island is just, I think, a, a treasure that's one of my very, very favourite places in the whole world. I would say that like researching that book was 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 pretty special um, and and something that I really loved. But I, I mean, all of the books, all of the books had a really different way that I had to research them and and um, and pl- different places that I had to travel to as well. I, I took. All of the photos, all of the location photos in all of my books. The Venice book, Cinnamon and Salt, that one I, I did entirely because we were in we were in the pandemic. <laughs> and I had gone to Venice in like the summer of 2020 before there was any, you know, no, there was no one, no one was even traveling. People were still afraid to to travel and countries were still, you know, some countries were in lockdown. Um, that was an, an incredible experience seeing Venice in the summertime with no with no tourists and taking photos for that book, um, researching the lagoon. I mean, I, I would say that all of all of the books have their own have their own place in my heart <laughs> for being like a favorite for, you know, let's say for, for this reason or that. But I, I don't know, to answer, to make a short version of that answer, I think maybe Aquacotta, but oh. it's largely due to with this place that I just, um, I just really, really love. Yeah. That's a beautiful answer. And the whole thing about how it came about, because I mean, some people you're on this mission for years and years to get a book published and, and this just kind of slid in front of you and was ready to go. And, you know, like it's so layered, isn't it? Because Florentine was happening and you would have been trying to do the best that you could with that in which obviously you did. It's a stunning book. And then um, for Aquacotta to just like invent itself almost. It's incredible. And they're such beautiful <laughs> books, aren't they? You know? Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I think Aqu- I was, um, Aquacotta, you know, it went out of print for a few years. And uh, so it was, it was published in 2017. 
And then a, a couple of years later, they, you know, they ran out of copies and, um, and it was just really hard to find. Um, I think somebody sent me a message saying that she saw it on eBay for like $150 or something because you couldn't find the copies of it anymore. I had been like campaigning with the publishers for years. Please, can we like, you know, do another edition of this book or something? It was, I mean, I, I was getting a lot of requests from, from other people. Uh, about this book because it's also the book I would say has the most like vegan and vegetarian or even gluten-free recipes in it because so much of that cuisine is based on cucina povera or like the you know the 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 poor peasant cuisine like making do with what you have which was actually like lots of vegetables (laughs) and legumes and um and and although this part isn't vegetarian but also the, the seafood from um you know the fresh fish from around the sea part. Um, so there were a lot of people that were still interested in in getting this book and they finally, finally did. <laughs> and so that that came back out in February this year. So I'm very happy that that's now like easier for people to, easier for people to find now. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I saw it in the bookstore the other day. You'll know the bookstore. I was in Paper Chain at Monica and they had a few oh, copies. Yeah. So that was really nice to see it. I had another flick through. I'm like, oh, because they've changed the size a little bit. Is that right? They changed the um oh I think the size is similar, but they changed the cover. Yeah. Um so that original cover had a photo of Porto Ercole, but the, the little fishing village where we were living. It had a photo of that place on the front cover. And um, and this time they put like a terrazzo cover, which was actually the end papers of the original edition. Um, and as, as I said, I love a good illustrated cover, so that I was really happy that they that they did that and made that change. And the only other difference inside is that I put an, an index to the to the vegan and the vegetarian and gluten free recipes. Um, because I often have people asking me which which one you know out of your cookbook is the one that would be most useful for vegetarians, you know. So I would guide them to that book and I thought that would be useful to have, just have a little index at the back so you could easily see those recipes. Yeah, that's yeah. a wise idea. Oh, well done. It's um, It looks beautiful. Another gorgeous book. Can I ask one more question? I, uh, yeah. I kind of have to now. Um, <laughs> since we've gone down into the book land, I have to ask this. Have you got another idea for a cookbook or are you just enjoying your Enoteca? Well, yeah. I mean, let's say I, I had <laughs> – I've always got an idea for a cookbook. But I, I, do, I do sort of have in mind a couple of books that I would like to make actually and I mentioned them to my publisher when I was – back in Australia last year for the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. One of them, they were like, yeah, immediately, whenever you're ready, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that book. Um, and that one is something that I'd like to explore, which is like a, a regional a regional cookbook um, with sort of lunch menus and that one I'd love to do. But the other cookbook that I really, really would love to do is, is like a children's book. My publishers were really, they shut that down immediately. <laughs> they were like, no, <laughs> kids' books are a whole different thing. Oh, you mean yeah. like. The other book. <laughs> so you're not talking about cooking? Are you talking about a food book with the children's or like um, you want to write a children's? Yeah. I, I think like a children's book that you could read like as, as a book, like even as a, you know, we, my kids have always, we always read a bedtime story 
even my 10 year old, um, we've always read a bedtime story and, and, um, yeah. So even like a book that you can read also has, you know, some ideas for recipes oh. in there, ways to, ways to cook and things together. And it would basically be like our life here, <laughs> our everyday life in Tuscany with my kids, but in a book form. Oh, that's a really <laughs> sweet I idea. I mean, I think it would be fun. Um, and I've seen some really beautiful cookbooks come out recently that are along those lines. So I think that if the other people are publishing these beautiful books, like, do you know the one it's called Off to Market? That's a really, I'll get the name of the author is Alice. She's an artist as well. Alice O'Hare. And she's done a beautiful book about like going to the market and she's a, a wonderful artist. So the drawings are particularly appealing. Felicita Sala has a has a really beautiful series of books called Lunch at 10 Pomegranate Street. And um and there's there's another one, A Year in Fleursville, I think is the other one. Those are basically books you can read, but they have like a recipe sort of incorporated in them. And um and we really love those books here. My, my kids like those books. So anyway, I have I have this idea but I just have to find the right person maybe who's as enthusiastic about it the right yeah the right friend absolutely those those books sound like such a beautiful idea because I haven't seen those to market or anything because I'm out of that stage now a little bit with my kids because my youngest is 14 and my oldest is 22 so you know I'm not in that land anymore where I'm looking at, at the bookstore or or accumulating those books but I think there's something so vital about the children integrating their reading and contemplating feeding themselves well like I think there's something really beautiful in that because we don't even get educated about that at school we're not in Australian schools to be honest unless you pick the food class and then you have to be like into that and wellness is a big deal isn't it and our health and being able to cook for yourself is such a good thing to have up your sleeve so I think that's there's something in it's so important and I think I think even allowing children, teaching them that there is joy in food, there is joy in cooking, that you can, you know, you can make these things yourself. It gives them, or even just, you know, they don't even have to make the recipes, even just reading about them and seeing other people take take joy in it, I think is like a really great step towards building a, a really, you know, a positive relationship with food and and your body because you're you need to put food into your body you know <laughs> you need to nourish it <laughs> and you need to have joy to get the most nourishment out of you know the food that you're eating as well i mean that i think that that's also what what makes life nice you know <laughs> is is enjoying enjoying the food and uh you know eating it with people you care about and um and sharing that so i think yeah i think all of for all of these reasons it's a really nice subject I think a really important subject to sort of teach kids about earlier on yeah I agree absolutely it's a wonderful subject to explore and I can see it working out for you with that to be honest the other book idea I had for you along the way just in case you need another one um your Tuscan long table I can see a a kind of book around your life there you know like once the Anoteca gets going more and you're you know it's been a few years and it's all um yeah. You know what I mean? I can see something there, to be honest. Something yummy. I actually, I actually did have a little flash of that. <laughs> that thought sort of came, you know, flashed through my mind as well. That oh, because I'm, I've just started writing down 
the menus I've been doing each week because I've realised I haven't haven't been really, you know, as I was saying, I don't always plan them. And sometimes, you know, there's something that sort of comes up last minute because I, like, impulse bought something. <laughs> and so I wanted to write them down so I could remember them also for next year. And I think that would be really nice, like the menus. <laughs> yeah. The menus each week, 52 market classes. <laughs> the seasonal menus and everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I'm into it. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm the worst person for this. I get a lot of book ideas too, and certainly I love those kind of books myself. Oh, well, you'll be busy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's been a treat to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you for coming back on. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's been a treat talking to you too.